Hello and welcome to the Surgical Spirit Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Haider Al-Hakim, the Third Eye Doctor. Pull up a chair and get ready for some candid and uncompromising discussion with experts, innovators, agitators, and influential people from every corner of health and well-being. From inside the hospital to at home in the kitchen, we're leaving no stone unturned in our quest to uncover the secrets of healthier, happier, more successful, and less stressful lives. Thank you so much for joining us, and without further ado, let's meet this episode's guest. Hello, Angie. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks you. Thank you, Hayda. How are you? I'm I'm very well. It's it's lovely and sunny. For some reason, we always talk about the weather when we start this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so British. Well, the sun makes you feel good. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm an external person, so li- literally, if the sun's out, I'm buzzing. If the clouds are out, I'm not. Um, yeah. But hey, you know, that's, you know, that's just the way it goes. Um, you've done so much, Angie. Like, where do we start? Where do we start with you? Oh, I don't know. Where would you like to start from your perception of what <laughs> what you think I've done? So, why did you start in healthcare? Uh, if if do you want me to be really honest, um, I started in healthcare because um, at the age of uh, seventeen, I didn't want to do A levels, and um, I uh, my aunt was, saw this new program, a new course. Uh, in podiatry, which is where uh, podiatrists could start to do foot surgery and biomechanics, etc. And uh, so it was her suggestion that I looked into doing that. And so um, I applied, a bit like the situation we have with young people now, I couldn't get a grant. And uh, so because I'm um, of Irish background, um, the Eastern Health and Social Services Board said that they would pay for me to train, provided I went into the NHS after training for three years. Mm. And that's how it all began. And what was that like, doing the training? Um, it was it was interesting. It was um, a flagship uh, college that was teaching these new techniques. It was very different. Um, there was um, a lot of focus on it because it was seen as radical having non so people that hadn't gone down the medicine route starting to do surgery um, so yeah it was it was um, it was quite different and it, it was a, so uh, doing that course for three years and then taking up a post in the NHS was a big culture shock for me because at that time in the early 80s um, the NHS weren't ready for podiatrists at all and so I came in and did um, quite a basic clinical role and then made it my um, purpose to become a manager so that I could start to to shape services and bring them into the 21st century. When you say cultural shock, could you tell us what you mean by that? Well, I suppose at that time, um, long waiting lists, um, quite a lot of disjointedness, so there wasn't integration in care per se, and quite a lot of silo working, um, and um, 
Yeah, you you did everything. So I remember my first day being handed some diaries, Mm. some waiting lists, and go and book these patients in and go and see them. So you did everything. Mm. Um, There was no admin support. Um, Yeah, there was no sort of central organisation to it. And uh, I must admit, some people had been on these waiting lists so long, they were deceased. And so it took me a while to work through through all of that. And um, yeah, quite antiquated technology, um, not very much prevention happening at that time. Mm-hmm. And, and what was the first thing you did after that? Um, after that, well, I suppose the, the thing that did really change and shape my career was becoming a head of service. And at that time, also spending a year at Rolls-Royce studying um, the Japanese approach to organizational development and that's at that point where I was introduced to the uh, the work and theories of um, W.E. Deming and Walter Schuart and uh, so Walter Schuart was very much about measurement and how you measure uh, things so that you know how they're working. Deming was very much about um, how you need to manage processes and measure how well they're working but balancing that with how you lead people and um, develop people and empower them mm. so he, he he's he was obviously about systems working and um, the fact that the less rules you put on their system the better it will work mm. And, you know, he had a great saying that the harder you push the system, the harder the system will push back. And I think we see that today. There are so many rules, so much uh, scrutiny. If we look at, um, you know, the governance from like CQC, often organisations spend more time preparing for the CQC than they actually do in improving the quality of the service for the patients and for the staff, you know, energies are pushed because the system's been pushed, the system's pushing in a different way. So, um, so that really changed, that, that shaped my career, if, mm. if, if I'm honest. Mm-hmm. And um, I was able to make a lot of service improvements uh, across the whole of the community trust after having that experience. Um, although when primary care groups were first introduced in Derbyshire, Um, I then chose to walk away because I could see that the way that they planned to construct them wasn't going to deliver the care to the quality that it had previously. So I couldn't stay and watch it be dismantled. Uh, In what way did you see that? I mean, how could you explain yourself? Yeah, because at that time, um, we did very much work as a whole system mm-hmm. in, in Derbyshire. And when I say whole system, um, it, there was a lot of fluidity between the acute trusts, the mental health trusts, social services, general practice, the community. Um, so, you know, we had finite resource and workforce that was maximised by the way that resource and uh, worked for the whole. 
Um, so there, were, there weren't solid boundaries as there are now. So once NHS trusts came in and primary care trusts, we saw a lot more division. Um, so in Derbyshire at that time, they thought they could just take, for example, the community trust, divide it into six, and then that would serve the six PCG, PCT populations, where actually what you needed was fluidity across the, the greater um, population footprint, which is what we're going back to now with the integrated organisations and primary care networks working at a population level and everyone focused on that population. And, you know, it's 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 quite interesting because um, you've got places like Manchester, which there is a devolution of um, yeah. of systems. Um, tell us your experience of that. And and has that changed your your outlook as well in terms of healthcare delivery? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've had two experiences of working in the northwest. One was actually at central Manchester hospitals. Um, which is a, a large trust mix of um, medical, surgical and tertiary, as well as community services. And um, I think the devolution uh, impact in the northwest has meant that they can, they control their destiny and they have had the ability to shape services uh, and focus them on what's best for the population for some considerable time um, and you know central Manchester you know have a fabulous chief nurse uh, Cheryl uh, Lenny who uh, you know has led a lot of that uh, patient focused service improvement particularly in, in the central Manchester area. Um, Trafford um, they have embraced system working and they had the ability to test um, different approaches. I, I work with Trafford in um, developing care coordination through a call centre. So nurses based in a call centre who people who are perhaps vulnerable and at risk of uh, needing uh, emergency services, uh, frequent admissions, attendances at hospital uh, were registered with a team and that team proactively supported them, so with wellness calls, and also the individual or their families had the ability to call the care coordination team if they thought that um, the person needed extra support or were in decline. And so, the this you know telephone centre, these these nurses in the telephone centre could work out with the individual what support was required proactively. So they didn't have to go through what I tend to call the washing machine, you know, in a lot of areas where if somebody's reach it, going to, to a crisis point because there isn't a, a central coordination area, they may go to their GP or they may phone 999 and, you know, they go to A&E, there's the four-hour pressure, uh, maybe get admitted when that's, that's not the best thing for them, you know, rather than having that proactivity out in the community and ability to work through what would be best for somebody without having to go round that loop. Uh, I do remember in particular one individual, it was a daughter who phoned in one day while I was there and she was in tears and her mum wasn't well and the daughter was at the end of her tether 
but the coordinating nurse that she spoke with was able to work through and understand what what was wrong with this woman's mum arrange for the doctor to prescribe some antibiotics for the community matron to go in and also for five days support to go in to support her mother to give the daughter a rest so that is very much proactive care and i think in manchester and uh, and uh, trafford they've had um the opportunity to test those things um that i'm not so sure other areas have because I think other areas up until now and the integrated systems I think will probably uh, hopefully change that um, it's been a one size fits all mm. you know so if, if, you know, if it's come down from above this is what you'll do then you have to do it rather than looking for that population but we know that you know going forward um, I think it's fantastic that we're getting now back to designing services for populations and and how services need to work together to support those populations proactively. Mm -hmm. And as you said, it does boil down to strong leadership. You know, they have a massive say in this. Absolutely. The the leadership comes in, I think, particularly in holding nerve. Because uh, if you want to implement a new way of working, um, because people are busy delivering today, the service today, the appointments today, etc., etc. You need strong leadership to help keep on track of going to the future and future delivery. And um, as I say, it's not linear. It, you know, it won't happen in a linear fashion. But keeping that nerve and that sense of direction of where the service will actually go is so important. Um, how can we develop that nerve? How can we develop that passion? How can we develop that energy? You know, given that some of us are early in our careers and some of us are late in our careers, and yet we do need that strong leadership quality. Absolutely. How do we develop it? I think there is so much pressure on daily delivery. Uh, and, you know, that whether it's... Um, the scores on the doors today, how many people have not, you know, are, are, are stranded in hospital today um, and looking at all the time at that short termism mm. um, rather than actually over a period of time, how can we get to where is needed to be um, allowing that say maybe this week and next week yes we will still have too many people who have you know been delayed in hospital um but actually looking at how do we get to the to the end goal um yeah how do we do it that 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 is that is the challenge because Mm. maybe it's so i mean let me ask you this question angie how do you develop strong leadership skills and quality in your work what makes you such a strong leader? Uh, what makes me such a strong leader? I th- think I try and apply the looking and reflecting at every situation and every day so that let's plan something, let's do it, let's reflect on it, and then if it's working, let's embed it, let's do more of it. If it's not working, what can we do tomorrow that is going to make a difference? Mm. So actually having that, you know, that quick change cycles and um, and base it on 
fact um, and not it's really important not to take knee-jerk reactions to something mm. it's really important to uh, to do that analysis if you're moving through improving and changing something um, and um, I mean, for me, I'm a really strong believer in starting each day if you're going through an improvement journey with a brief and a debrief. Um, actually, it's no different to, you know, a, a ward working well, a general practice working well, a theatre working well. You know, starting out with that, what are we going to do today? And checking in at the end of the day, what went well, what could have gone what didn't go so well, what can we do tomorrow to make that better? So it's about having a learning approach. I think it's really, really important. No such thing as failure, only feedback. You know? And that's quite difficult to sort of accept given that we've all been educated to really fear failure. I mean, that's how I was educated going through the whole medical system and, and, you know, even in life. You, know, you sort of run away from failure. You fear it. That's a reality of things. I mean, you know, the sound bites and says otherwise. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think if people fear failure, um, and if they're made to fear failure, um, it's not well, good. <laughs> it, well, it it affects how they think. Yeah. It affects their behaviour. It probably makes them fail more. Um, because of that, that, that um, because of that fear, um, I think what's really important is to try and design things so that people do not fail or mm. fail less, mm. or have come across situations where something didn't work so well. Uh, you know, that's that's the whole patient safety agenda. That's how it should be. Um, it's very much what high reliability organisations do so the airline industry Mm. um, petrochemical industry you know if they fail it has a high cost in terms of life and um, finance in everything so I think you know having that approach to trying to to prevent people failing um, or getting something wrong is um, is really really important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and going back to strong leadership, I think something that we talked about previously is the process of listening, and you know that's something that that you're good at, and something that you've been uh, a fan of for a long time. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and uh, yeah, I think you know. Before we started the, the, this uh, podcast, we were talking, and, and I said, you know, I've really become, you know, passionate about. We've got two ears, one mouth for a reason. We need to listen more, talk less, and if you think about a lot of the meetings that take place, uh, people are. You know they've got their agenda they know what they want to say they want to get their point across but are they actively listening to each other um, if there's good active listening in um, a constructive way um, then actually the I always say knowledge lies between heads so if you can build a conversation 
um, and and actually you can come out with you know you might have an idea and somebody's got a slightly different slant on it um, but actually through a constructive conversation you could come out with an even better idea um, and so it's embracing embracing that as, a, as an approach and letting people have equal airtime um, yeah you know a, a, and embracing diversity of thought diversity of approach good teams um, have a good mix of different styles um, different thought patterns um, I mean if we look at Edward de Bono, he wrote in his books, The Six Thinking Shoes, The Six Thinking Hats, all based on the fact that people think in a different way. And how do we manage that process of thinking so that actually we get good outcome for the team, for the organisation? And, you know, Nancy Klein, the same with her work on her, her thinking principles. You know, how do you set the... The, the uh, create the environment, the the time to properly have a discussion to think to think something through. Um, it's so important, and it, we don't do that very well at all. Yeah, I'm a great fan of Nancy Klein's. I've uh, I've read most of her books, and I actually love love the way she writes things. It's just so clear and and um, it's gentle. It's gentle to the to the brain. Absolutely, it, and you know, by being kind to the brain, the blood flows better to the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if, if somebody's fearful and in a stressful situation of a meeting, um, we have the fight and flight response, don't we? Mm. So the blood flows away from the brain to where it needs to be for that flight approach. When actually, if somebody is in um, a less stressful situation, um, an appreciative environment where actually, you know, there, there is no stupid question, there is no stupid thing to say, uh, there's just much more exploration of why people think in a certain way or believe in a certain thing, then... Um, yeah, well, a much better outcome. And I think it's definitely something that, for me, we need to apply much more in the environment I'm used to working, which is healthcare. Yeah, yeah, which is a very, very stressful uh, place, no doubt. And um, having that whole aura of of um, just sort of sitting down and listening to other people's views and just having that sort of kind presence absolutely and it, it works with team team colleagues uh managers to their i hate the word subordinates but you know we are the nhs is hierarchical um as well as the clinician to patient um um there is a, a fabulous doctor who you may want to talk to at some point hey don't you might come across him gordon coldwell mm. And Gordon, Gordon applies, uh, or I've seen him apply um, airline approaches, so the safety approaches to his ward rounds. Um, but one of the things that struck me most with Gordon is his 
Um, sensitive and appreciative conversations with patients. You know, how he constructs the conversation, takes the time to plan the conversation before he gets to the bedside with his team. Um, and um, the, the, the outcome all round is so much better because, um, you know, he allows the, the, the patient and the family to have the airtime. Um, you know, see the, see the person, not the condition. So it's not the heart attack in Bay, whatever. Mm. Um, but it's the man who used to be the uh, cameraman on whatever film who just happens to be in hospital, you know? So, uh, yeah, it's fascinating in how he does that. Yeah, I mean, it's having that personal touch, isn't it? That sort of, you know, that spirit side of things rather than just the physical side of things. Absolutely. Because, you know, we're all spiritual beings, aren't we? It matters to everybody, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. Well, I mean, it's been absolutely fascinating. You know, we can talk for um, for hours and hours, to be honest, because... Uh, because you're a lady with with much much experience um give us sort of three words of wisdom for people who are working in the healthcare what would you advise them in today's interesting turbulent times oh gosh um support each other um three words for yeah support each other um be kind Wonderful. Um, how can people get hold of you, Angie? What's the best way? Um, well, I, I've got a website that's I'm reconstructing it at the moment, so it's got a few gaps in it. But um, they can look at www.carebydesign.org uh, or email me on angie at carebydesign.org. Thank you so much, Angie. It's been great. Thank you, Hader. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this installment of the Surgical Spirit podcast. For all the latest in the world of Surgical Spirit, don't forget to follow on Twitter at The Third Eye Doc and catch me on Facebook at the page The Third Eye Doctor. You can visit the website at www.thethirdeyedoctor.co.uk for more information on the work that I do. And please send us feedback and questions and suggestions for the podcast. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. I've been Dr. Haider Al-Hakim and I'll see you next time.